live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Rabbi Hirsch, welcome back to part two on IBM as part of our three weeks special on the Holocaust. So just as a brief recap, IBM, one of the largest companies in the world, they use their punch cards and early computing technology to help Germany track and identify Jews, obviously with devastating effects. And even after the war started, including all those in Germany, Austria and Czechoslovakia, and carried on renting out these specialized machines throughout the war through neutral countries, especially Switzerland, as you mentioned, and they made millions and millions of dollars from the Nazis between 1933 and 1945. Yes, and just to explain again why it was so crucial and useful for the Nazis, if you've done a census on a half a million people across Germany, so the names are written or typed on pieces of paper and located in one place. If you wanted to select particular criteria, you wanted male Jews aged uh, 18 to 50, you'd have to manually go through every single piece of paper. With IBM cards, you can punch into the computer what you needed. Jews in Amsterdam who were printers. You get their names, their current locations, which ghetto they're in, and you can do this exercise in a number of hours, and it can be done a number of different times in various locations under Nazi rule. So it's just a game changer. But it was in the third phase, post-42, that IBM's technology was used most destructively. Because knowing how many Jews there are in a region, even being able to corral them into a ghetto is only the prelude. It was organized mass murder that really required IBM's help. At the Nazi Wannsee conference in early '42, the decision was taken to speed up the murder of the Jews, and instead of shootings and mass graves, the Jews would be transported to six extermination centers by trains. And Heydrich presented a long list of Jewish populations broken down by country, with Eichmann providing the list based on compilations of Dihomag experts. But obviously, this raised a massive geographical logistical challenge. How do you rid an entire continent of its Jews? You have... I don't know, 74,000 in Bohemia, Moravia. You have 34,000 still alive in Lithuania at this stage, 43,000 in Belgium. The list goes on country after country. So to do so, firstly, IBM supplied Hollerith systems, hundreds of them, to the railways across the Third Reich, installing them at railroad junctions across Europe. And it wasn't only the people that needed to be counted, it was uh, the exact amount of freight cars available on any given day anywhere in Europe. Punch card systems identified the location of each freight car, how much quote-unquote cargo it could accept, and these figures are updated every 48 hours. So instead of the guise of data counting or recovery, it was literally machines used to hunt human beings. Yes. I mean, you have, for instance, the major concentration camps are assigned 
honoris code numbers for their paperwork. So Auschwitz is one, Buchenwald is two, Dachau is three, uh, you know, the list goes on, Mauthausen is seven, Stutthof is 12. And on arrival in the camp, it is impossible to get rid of the your own Hollerith code. Uh, as an example, in August 1943, a timber merchant from Benzin in Poland is part of an arriving group of 400 inmates to Auschwitz. And the first thing that happens is a doctor examines him to determine his fitness for work or whether he should be killed on arrival. This is noted on a medical record and registered by Hollerith in the Labour Index. And he is assigned a five-digit number. This number is going to now follow him from assignment to assignment, from camp to camp. And once his card is processed, it is stamped at the bottom, um, Hollerith Erfast, which means Hollerith registered in large letters. And this would be the case in camps across Europe. Later that summer, the timber merchant's five-digit Hollerith number, 44673, was tattooed on his forearm. Well, I thought it was purely for counting. I mean, the tattoo was always the Hollerith number? No, no. For various reasons, there's an overlap between non-Jewish and Jewish prisoner numbers. And anyway, in most camps, there wasn't a tattoo that was made. I just saw actually a very touching photo of three survivors. I don't know if uh, you've seen it, but they they were behind each other. Their numbers were. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a known photo. So all Auschwitz inmate information you know, the, the, which prisoners are still alive, who's died, who's been transferred to another camp, is all punched into the Hollerith system and wired each day to the SS. So the administration can be on top of slave labor reports. And in fact, at one point in 43, the central office was told that there are 3,581 Auschwitz Jews available for reassignment to an armament plant. Now, the SS administration, there was an officer there by the name of Mara, he knew from Hollerith's that there were 25,000 Jews available for work transfers. So he writes directly to the Auschwitz camp commandant, Rudolf Hurst, and says, what are the remaining 21,500 Jews doing? Please scrutinise this process and give a report. You know, it wasn't a question, it was a statement of fact. He knew that this was missing. And the machines themselves, because they were somewhat fragile, they are serviced by IBM on site about once a month, even when that site is in or near a concentration camp. In Mauthausen, which is a giant Austrian concentration camp, really a complex of slave labor, Hollerith operators could see the entire parade grounds and the arrival of every prisoner transport. In Bergen-Belsen, um, meters away from the crematoria and near the kitchens, there was the block leader's house. Inside, there was a room for the Arbeitsdienstführer, the labor service leader, where the Hollerith punch cards were processed. Now, this is the most damning evidence to date of the fact that they knew about the extermination. Yes, although you're going to have to find somebody who operated those cards in order to be able to connect the, the dots. The fact that prisoners might have known that there were machines there. No, but you said IBM were actually coming to service them. Through neutral countries. But once again, you don't know who the employee was from IBM. You'll never be able to find him. So it's almost pointless. Now, having said that, in Bergen-Belsen, in December 44, a Dutch Jew, Rudolf Heim, was assigned to work 
with these cards and every day there's transports arriving identified through these Hollerith cards which you know they're, they're just a card it's about five inches long about three and a half inches wide and they're holes punched in various rows which detail nationality date of birth marital status number of children work skills and the people are classed into one of generally 16 categories Communists number six, Drew is eight, criminal is 10, diplomatic council 16, gypsy 12, prisoner of war 13. And all of this information is fed into the local machine along with the reason for transfer. So code two simply meant transfer to another camp for continuing labor, whereas the sort of ominous code six meant special handling, which was normally translated as immediate extermination. By early 1944, head office at Friedrichstrasse in Berlin was able to report to Eichmann that a total of 5 million Jews have been eliminated by natural decrease, concentration camps, ghettos, and those who were put to death. So there was a tally, an ongoing continuous tally of these things. So you're saying that without IBM, these people would not have been shipped to the camps, as simple as that? Without IBM's machinery and the supply of punch cards, Hitler's camps could never have managed the numbers that they did. Neither the gassing nor the transport. It would have been impossible to make the schedules. I mean, take Hungarian Jews, for example. In seven weeks in 1944, 437,000 Jews were transported to Auschwitz in Poland, and 80% of them are exterminated basically on the day that they arrive. How? And then these Hollerith machines, as the Allies start liberating the territories, both in the East and the West, these precious machines are moved behind defensible lines because the Reich continues to use them. In 1945, Hitler himself issued a decree to use punch card technology to register all Germans needed for the defense of the Reich, because by then they're drafting 16-year-olds to fight. They need to know where they are. Who was running this from IBM's end? I mean, you were speaking about Tom Watson last week. He's he was the big he was the big boss and he's based in New York. Who was running day-to-day operations? So Werner Lear, who was IBM's European manager in Geneva, was involved with virtually every transaction in every country through the war. He put down a paper trail of full states, of false documentation in late March 42. Lear had negotiated contracts with two blacklisted weapons munitions company. Yet in April, on April the 27th, he sent a cable to New York pretending that the two newly negotiated contracts were signed before the war. And then he asked the US government for a special exemption. He wanted um, the US commercial attaché in Bern Um, who had asked that the contracts be cancelled, that they intervene and on the basis of the fact that it had been signed before the war. So he laid down false logs, chronologies all the time. And because he was a Swiss national, he travelled freely to and from Germany into occupied countries, uh, almost, uh, you know, micromanaging company affairs. Um, And in fact... Uh, two days after this cable was sent to New York, he told the American consul in Geneva how IBM Geneva 
operated. He said, and I quote, this office is a clearing office between the local organizations in the various countries and the New York headquarters. And basically explained that IBM New York made all the decisions, but the revealing records, this he didn't tell them, but the revealing records wouldn't be kept in New York, but in Europe, because they couldn't be uncovered and examined. And, you know, sort of generally, IBM prepared their record in such a way that IBM New York could talk of plausible deniability. From 1942 to 1945, IBM New York would would cable, would wire uncharacteristically lengthy instructions to its managers in neutral Europe. Uh, You've got to repossess machines and stop trading with branches in enemy countries. And, you know, each instruction would come with highly patriotic rationale for, for obeying the law. But when these cables arrived, so, you know, Watson's trusted managers in in Sweden and Switzerland, they'd get very busy and they'd ignore New York's instructions. In fact, a Department of Justice investigator recorded that the Swedish manager, Tag Lundberg, received instructions to cease trading with the enemy. And it was more than a year later that he complied. And in many instances, there were elaborate document trails in Europe fabricated to demonstrate compliance when, in fact, the opposite was true. It's an immense operation. And what you're describing is an immense cover-up. Are you telling me that they never got caught? Okay. So during the war, there is, I guess we could say one man in particular did take notice. He's not a politician or a member of high society. His name was Harold Carter. And he worked within a section of the Department of Justice, whose mission, amongst others, was to acquire economic intelligence, which included crimes which are called trading with the enemy. And this is throughout the war or post? No, no, no. This is in the, during in the war. And so he's looking at intelligence intercepts from Switzerland and files and, and other material. And he comes to the conclusion, the realization that Nazi Germany has developed an extraordinary punch card industry. Now, given IBM's monopoly on this and its special leasing practices, it means that the company possessed a crucial continuing impact on Nazi Germany's ability to wage war. That's the only way, you know, two and two equals four. So he launches an investigation. And he goes to their warehouse in Manhattan, and he's shown files arranged alphabetically by country going from 1934 to 1940. And it's got correspondence about punch card production, about machines, repair records. But where were the files listing the name of the customer, the type of business? Most importantly, where were the what are called application studies, meaning the specific analysis of each machine's purpose, what was it going to be used for, given that punch cards were custom made? And IBM New York's answer, oh, all those records are in the offices in Geneva. Okay, so where are the records for 1933, the year before we started? Oh, they've been destroyed. We destroy them every six years. So he can't get any further. He can't get any more government support. So he gave up and he typed a note in his file which says, 
because of the meager information contained in the files, especially on the European subsidiaries, it is reasonable to assume that either, either the important files are in the offices of the European headquarters in Geneva or IBM has not made full disclosure. Now, there is a reason that the American government didn't want to rock the boat with IBM too much, because IBM is helping both sides. IBM is, remember, America is their largest client, and the military in America becomes a very big part of that during the Second World War. So, you know, some of the most top-secret operations, the, the Enigma code in, in Bletchley Park in England, Utolerith machines, as did British intelligence units in, in Singapore, in Cairo. So you're saying that there's thousands of IBM machines operating during World War II. They, yep. were, they were operating in ghettos and train depots and yep. concentration camps. What happened after the war? They just retracted everything? They came to collect them? Yes, more or less. So, you know, as you say, you've got thousands of machines operating during World War II in all of these places. But once the smoke clears in 1945, a pattern emerges in Europe in that World War II has now ended. IBM rushes in to, yeah, exactly that, recover its machines and bank accounts from enemy territory. Because, you know, IBM was never about anti-Semitism per se. It was about money, just without the morals. And therefore, there's no realm where IBM failed to collect country by country. I will give you the examples of some of them. There are millions in blocked bank accounts across Europe and, as we mentioned last week, newly acquired real estate, the factories, and of course, thousands of Hollerith machines. So let's start with Romania. Romania is liberated in late August 44. On September the 2nd, 1944, IBM Bucharest cables a report to IBM Geneva. Company is in working order. Arrange urgently protection of property and personnel. And New York then asks them, for a comprehensive report on all financial statements, profit and loss account, and rental revenues for the years 42 to 44, and an estimate of the machines, how many of them could now be rented out, what spare parts do you need, and they wanted to know, and this is the most just ridiculous in a way, did Romania make its quota? What quota are you referring to? Sales quota. Sales quota during the war. Because if they did hit sales targets for the Nazis during the Second World War, then the Romanian subsidiary can take its rightful place in IBM's 100% club for outstanding performance. Wow. Right? Okay. Now, Romania pays out war reparations. $20 million to American claims. I think it's $30 million to Russian claims. By July forty-five. IBM has lodged its own compensation claims for war damage, a total of exactly $151,383.73, which is probably around, you know, $15 million in today's money, which included $37,946.41 for damaged Hollerith machines. <laughs> what was the rest right? of the money? What compensation was due? Rentals. So for IBM Romania, the, you know, the, the profits of World War II were then over. Amsterdam. So there's a guy called Garbrecht who administered IBM Holland and Belgium during the war. He finalized contracts into formal leases 
Each contract declares at the top that the agreement is between uh, Maschinell Berichtwesen in Berlin and IBM Corporation in New York. And there are details about the specific machines, serial numbers, monthly rent, permissible hours of usage each month, rental terms, and the fees start from the summer of 1942. I'll give you one as an example. Contract hash 091 forward slash 1 forward slash 0094 forward slash 43. For a duplicating alphabetizing puncher, serial number 10167, specific rent at Reichsmarks 127 and 47, I assume, pfennigs per month, retroactive to August 13th, 1942. This is, you know, to the penny. And Yugoslavia, just before the Russians overran Yugoslavia in October 44, IBM's people in Belgrade forward their final invoice to Germany because Germany aren't going to be paying any invoices very soon to Yugoslavia. And the Reich's last regular payment arrived to Yugoslav Watson. Some of the companies were called by Watson's name, issued April 13th, 45. But as soon as the Americans arrived, IBM New York wanted all its Yugoslav assets restored, so it asked the US military to help them recover 18 specified machines which were moved from Yugoslavia to Germany, and they provided the serial numbers. How did you know the exact serial numbers? And the company asks the State Department to reclaim its Bank Belgrade account at Yugo Banker. In France, it took a year of petitions through the State Department, but IBM recovered all of its machines and got all of its money in the bank accounts in Credit Lyonnais. And Germany itself, same story? Same story. More, slightly more complex because there were different allies there. But, you know, they recapture Diomag Germany and the Americans and do. Well, well, everybody sort of does. And on May 18th, 1945, IBM New York sent letters to the State Department. The first explains that IBM owned a company called Deomag that installed equipment around Germany. But that machinery has been moved, especially in the last days of the Third Reich. So they wanted the State Department's help in locating these devices. And in the letter, they write as follows. From January 1937, Deomag has failed to give us detailed information of installations in Germany. Consequently, we don't know the exact location of the machines. We attached a list of places in which at one time we knew the machines were located. And they have a list with 88 German towns where Hollerith's had been installed. But it, it is totally untrue because not knowing addresses since 1937, IBM has been preparing up-to-date addresses even as late as 1944 on numerous key Hollerith installations. That's one letter. The second letter is to what was called the War Problems Division, which included the addresses of two residential properties that had accumulated substantial money for rental during the war. And by September 45, more than 320 German installations were back in operation. There were hollerists at the public utilities like, you know, water, gas, insurance companies, railroads. IBM receives back 100% of the voting stock of Deomag in 1947, and they changed the company name to IBM Deutschland in April 49. 
Man, so you have the American military recovering assets of an American company that was assisting in genocide. Correct. But from the American perspective, what they were doing is recovering American assets that had been seized by the Nazis illegally uh, before <laughs> or during the war. Wow. Right. So, you know, you've got Justice Robert Jackson, who's the chief Nuremberg prosecutor, who in an interview said that he feared that German industrialists who were one of the chief causes of the war would never be brought to justice. He didn't realise that this list would have included some of his own countrymen. Right. Now, the irony at these famous Nuremberg trials, the process of the trials was slowed down by the necessity of translating all the documents and all the exhibits and all the testimony into several languages of the war crime tribunal. You had the French, you had the Russians, you had the German and the English, and they're all in Germany and they're all in Nuremberg. So Jackson turns to a newly invented process called simultaneous translation, and there's one company that takes all the evidence and translated it, and they even did it for free as patriots, IBM, right? And in the years that follow, IBM's worldwide stature becomes even more of a, you know, of a beacon to the cause of progress. It adopted a corporate motto, the Solutions Company, and that meant whatever the impossible task, IBM technology could find a solution. And the people who headed up IBM enterprises in Nazi Europe and America became revered giants within the corporation's global community. Uh, Chauncey, who we mentioned last week, he becomes chairman of IBM World Trade Corporation. And the European subsidiary managers are rewarded with top jobs. And so now, with all the money regained and the machines recovered and the record clear... For IBM, the war is over. It's mind-blowing how they managed to recover it all after a war-torn country, you know, with military help. They actually covered their losses, their potential losses. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Unbelievable. So you mentioned last week the book on IBM. Yes. You said it was written by Edwin Blett. Yeah. How did IBM respond to such a scathing attack on them? The first the publication. So... In February 2001, as we mentioned, this book, IBM and the Holocaust, was released in nine languages in 40 countries, and they did it at the same time. So they, they were foregoing the customary months of you know advanced catalogue sales and, and, and store placements and adverts, but they wanted the findings to be read immediately and internationally. Maximum impact. Right. And equally important, there were vital documents that had yet to be reviewed. These wouldn't now be able to disappear or they wouldn't be obstructed in their quest to, to read them. And IBM, in the face of continuous uh, media requests after this book's release, didn't give any further documents or evidence or explain its conduct. Instead, the company issued an official statement IBM does not have much information about this period and declined to comment. That was it. There's probably some truth to it after all the evidence destroyed. Most of it, the fact that he managed to reconstruct so much of it without being given access to all of IBM's files means there's enough of it around for them to know exactly. Even, I'm saying, even 60 years later. There's one interesting outcome back to what we mentioned last week. In Paris, 
The author of the book on IBM was contacted by Robert Carmel, the son of René Carmel, whose patriotic service to France as a counterintelligent agent specialising in statistics and punch card technology had slowed the Nazi deportations of Jews, as we mentioned. So they met at a hotel in Paris, the son, Robert Carmel, who himself by then was uh, elderly but very lucid, and he told the author very emotionally that the French statistical service sabotaged the uh, ability to track the Jews, to which he was asked how he could be so certain. And he, with tears in his eyes, he said that he was 22 years old and he'd been asked by his father to manage the Lyon regional office. And he personally operated the Hollerith machines in Toulouse. And he said, we never punched column 11, never. And column 11 was the racial information about, you know, were they Jewish, were they Catholic, etc. Wow. So you've explained in detail what IBM did during the war years, but I'm still I'm, I'm shocked that after the war, with this amount of evidence, no one did anything. Okay, listen, after the war, which needs to be a podcast in its own right, but in brief, the West was fighting communism. And they more or less forgave all their German enemies. They brought Nazi scientists into the USA, the paperclip conspiracy. They built up West Berlin as a showcase with Nazi industrialists. And although IBM was the worst of the companies that traded with the Nazis from a Jewish perspective and caused Jewish deaths, but there were a number of others who traded. And they were all large, and because of their size, they were never prosecuted. Bearing in mind, American investments in Nazi Germany in 1941 totaled $475 million in that currency. And we understand that big companies are not going to walk away that easily. So the parent companies in the USA followed a strategy of continuing to do business with the Nazi regime rather than divest themselves of their German assets. I mean, we'll look at one in particular, infamous, famous. People are aware that Henry Ford was the owner of the Ford Motor Company and an anti-Semite. And they may even know that from 1920 to 1927, he published the Dearborn Independent, in which he wrote articles, his newspaper, that blamed the Jews in every possible context for America's and the world's ills. If there are strikes, it's the Jews. Financial scandals, the Jews. Agricultural depression, the Jews. And the Jew was, in fact, manipulating and controlling the world. So, unsurprisingly, Ford also republished the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And this Dearborn Independent was spread through the Ford Motor dealerships across the country. So, you know, there'd be stacks of them in a dealership in California or or Iowa. And in some places, they'd put copies of the newspaper in the car. And when you drove off with your Model T on the seat next to you, there was a copy of the Dearborn Independent. And his money and influence commands tremendous attention. And and he is spewing stuff that is no different than what Hitler is saying in his beer hall meetings in Munich at the same time. And, you know, for the Jews reading Ford's uh, rants in the Dearborn Independent, this is frightening. Ford is also one of the few people singled out for praise in Mein Kampf by name. At Hitler's trial in 1924, there is testimony that Ford gave Hitler money. And other figures in the Ford company included Karl Grausch of IG Farben, 
who became a director. And Crouch testified under interrogation in 1946. And he says as follows. I myself knew Henry Ford and admired him. I went to see Goering and told him that if we took the Ford independence away from them in Germany, it would aggrieve friendly relations with American industry. And Goering agreed. So I, this Grouch, participated regularly in board meetings to take a stand for the Henry Ford Works after the war had begun, and thereby we succeeded in keeping the Ford Works operating independently. And Edsel Ford, who is the son, had a great deal to do with European companies. He and his father had one thing in common. They believed in business as usual during the war, like IBM. And Edsel was on the board of the American branch of IG Farben. Now, after Pearl Harbor, Ford moved to protect the company's interest in France, even though this would mean collaboration with the Nazi government. Of course, the problem was, how do you keep in touch? Because now America and Germany are at war with each other. So to overcome this difficulty, Edsel traveled to Washington at the beginning of 1942 and entered into an arrangement with the Russia Assistant Secretary of State, Breckinge Long, who at the same time was blocking financial aid to German Jewish refugees by citing the Trading with the Enemy Act. But this guy agreed that it would be possible for letters to travel to and from occupied France to America via Lisbon and Vichy. But because it would be too dangerous to risk the letters falling into the hands of the press or foreign agents, they would have to be carried by a Portuguese courier called Lesto, who had clearance from the Nazi government who would travel in and out of Paris. And this starts in January 42. Dolphus, the French manager, writes the first letter after Pearl Harbor to Ford in Michigan. And he says, since the state of war between the USA and Germany, I can't correspond with you very easily. And I have asked Lesto to go. And he adds that, you know, production is continuing as before. Trucks are being manufactured by the French for the occupying Germans. And Ford was supplying the enemy. And the letter concludes by saying, I propose to send again Mr. Lesto to America as soon as all formalities and authorizations are accomplished. And in June 43, the Nazi custodian of the Cologne plant, Robert Schmidt, traveled to Portugal for talks with Ford managers there. Eventually, there is a letter written by Henry Morgenthau, who's the Secretary of State for the Treasury in 1943. And he says as follows, a short time ago, an investigation was made of the files of the Ford Motor Company in order to determine the extent of its relationship and its control over its French subsidiary. I have attached a summary which discloses that from the fall of France to July 1942, firstly, the business of the Ford subsidiaries in France substantially increased. Two, their production was solely for the benefit of Germany and the countries under German occupation. Three, the Germans have shown clearly their wish to protect Ford's interest because of the attitude of strict neutrality maintained by Henry and Edsel Ford, and this is even after the war starts, and fourth, the increased activity of the French Ford subsidiaries on behalf of German receives the commendation of the Ford family in America. And Morgenthau wrote, we propose to submit copies of this report to military intelligence and the FBI. And 
despite the fact that there was a report running to hundreds of thousands of words with, with, with exhaustive documentation and letters, nothing whatsoever was done about the matter. And in fact, when American soldiers invaded Europe in June 44 in jeeps and trucks and tanks manufactured by the big three motor companies, including Ford, it came as an unpleasant surprise for these soldiers to discover that the enemy was also driving trucks manufactured by Ford. And by the way, Ford didn't just make trucks for the German army. There is a Schneider report, which is now in the National Archives, which states that American Ford agreed to a barter deal that gave the Reich increased access to large quantities of strategic raw materials, especially rubber. And by the way, in June of 1940, after the fall of France, Henry Ford personally vetoed a U.S. government-approved plan to produce under license Rolls-Royce engines for British fighter planes. And this is according to published accounts by his own associates. But meanwhile, Ford has gone on making special deals. In late 42, the U.S. ambassador to London reported that 2,000 German army trucks were authorised for repair by Ford Motorworks in Switzerland, and that Ford's Zurich branch, on US orders, was from Ford, obviously, was repairing trucks and converting the use of gasoline for trucks and cars of the German army in Switzerland. And finally, just like IBM, American Ford received dividends from its German subsidiary worth uh, approximately $60,000 for the years 1940 to 1943. And like IBM, they declined a request to interview, saying they were too busy. And even though American Ford now does condemn what happened at its Cologne plant during the war, it continued to employ the managers who were in charge at the time. You know, after the war, Schmidt, who I mentioned earlier, was briefly arrested by Allied military authorities and barred from working for Ford, but he's reinstated as the company's technical director in 1940. So, you know, another collaborator with the Nazis for the same motivation and kindred interests, and they were more all part of a, a silent war because money and power bought you a lot more cover-up than you might have thought. So I don't know if this is the right time, but German products. So we've been speaking about these companies that had no morals, and as you mentioned, Ford was just right. the opposite extreme, real right. anti-Semitism. Yet so many Jewish people drive Fords, and so many people use other technologies. What are your thoughts on, uh... I'm not going to give a definitive answer to this question because there isn't one and it's not based on halacha. It's based more on a person's feeling on the matter and, you know, either way is valid. I mean, on the one hand, it's true to say that were you to boycott the products of companies that traded with anti-Semites or were anti-Semites... We can't use any. There's very little you can trade. On the other hand, you can understand the revulsion of those who did not want to use products made directly by peoples or nations whose name is directly associated with the Holocaust. There's no a feeling. There's no correct way to answer this question. Right. So I just want to explain to the listeners why we uh, have been a bit out of schedule, because you've been very busy flying. I usually say welcome back, but <laughs> right. I think uh, 
I shouldn't really just reveal your whole calendar to, to the world, <laughs> but you've been right. in, you had a successful trip in Prague, yes, and then you're off to sure. New York in the tomorrow, it, yes, tomorrow morning, in the early hours. Yes. Um, just as a postscript, I just came back from a business halacha summit called H3, and there were almost 600 Jews there from around the entire UK, and it was honestly heartwarming to see the variety of Yidden around the UK that listen to the podcast from Rabbonim, Hasidim, Litvaks, the entire breadth of Jewish society of following and listening. You know, people told me that they showed the Har Sinai episodes, the Torah Sinai, to their teenage children. Gosh. And they were a huge chizak. Right. So, okay. Baruch Hashem, oh. you would have liked to be there. Someone even told me that he's keeping himself back from listening to the episodes because he, he wants to listen to a few of them on his long road trip in the summer. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> and there were many ideas and suggestions, and I just told them all email. I mean, right. you read them all, we see them all, and there have been many podcasters implemented as a result. And to all the listeners, all I can ask is to leave a five-star review. It helps a lot more than you think, and it helps other people find it. And just like you enjoy it, maybe others will too. And keep spreading and keep sending us your feedback. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. We'll see you next week.